0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to A Conversation with author Michael Goldberg. We have a delight this afternoon <coughs> to hear from uh, Michael Goldberg, uh, I really want to the presentation to be his and not mine, so I'll give the briefest of introductions. You have more time with him and less time with me introducing him. He's a nationally acclaimed writer and speaker. He's held university chairs in religious studies, worked with an international strategic management consulting firm, served as a professional ethicist with the Georgia Supreme Court and various hospital ethics committees while additionally providing support as an ICU and hospice chaplain. Amongst his other other books are Jews and Christians, Getting Our Story Straight, why Should You Survive and Raising Spirits? And his newest book is a novel called Zeitlitz's Blessing, and is here to share with us uh, from and about that book and some of the other studies and research. Michael, it's our honor to have you with us today. Thank you, thank you for coming. And at the top, I want to thank uh, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, who is involved with this in some way. And uh, I met Rabbi Dorf over 50 years ago. And from the first day I met him, he's been nothing but kind to me. And I suspect there are a lot of other people who could say the same thing about him. Um, So, I just want to, just off the top, because I'd like this to be more of a conversation than a lecture. Um, Have any of you read any of my other books? Can I just see hands? Okay. Have any of you read this book? Not yet. Okay. (laughs) So, Excuse me. Could you could you be just a little louder or closer to the microphone? How's that? Thank you. It's like the voice from God. Speak up, Moses. Okay, uh, I will speak louder. <laughs> so, I once went to uh, a book event by the novelist Isabel Allende, and she told the story. She said she was going to her dentist for a routine checkup. And at one point the dentist said to her, you know, when I retire, I think I'm gonna become a writer. And Allende said to him, you know, when I retire, I think I'm gonna become a dentist. (laughs) (laughs) And what she's getting at is there's no such thing as good writing, there's only good rewriting that comes through practice and practice and practice. So I've been writing books for over 45 years. And there's a kind of an arc to this one. All of my nonfiction books, the ones about theology, are about the importance of certain kinds of stories for our lives. I've called them master stories because they are these overarching communal stories that frame our existence in which a community says, this is where we've come from, this is who we are, this is how you fit, and this is what your role in life is supposed to be. So for Jews, that's the exodus from Egypt. That is the seminal story that frames us. For Christians, it's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And these stories, when people have very deep moral religious conflicts, at bottom, it's always a, a clash between rival master stories. And so I spent a lot of my time looking at these kinds of stories. I wrote a book called, uh, Why Should You Survive? that got covered in a front page book review in the Washington Post on a Sunday, in the New York Times, I was on NPR. And what that book was talking about is how there's another story that's trying to usurp the exodus as the Jewish master story. And that's a story that spans the Holocaust, through Israel, and it's which one is the one in which we see our lives. And there are ways to harmonize them, but there are ways that they're very, very different. Um, I wrote about, how many of you have ever been to the US Holocaust Museum in Washington, okay? Remember the last room that you go out and there are all these inscriptions on the wall, and they have biblical quotes like, you are my witnesses, and what you're supposed to, Think from that is that you're the witnesses for those murdered by the Nazis. But the whole verse in the Tanakh is, you are my witnesses and I am God. And so what that Holocaust master story does is try to shut God out of the picture and insert in place Jewish peoplehood and Jewish survival. And so I wrote about that. And then, um, along with Rabbi Sheldon Pennis there, uh, I was a hospice and hospital chaplain, and um, I wrote a book that came out of stories that I had with patients. And somebody read the book and said, you know, these are all like little short stories, and there's an overarching narrative uh, plot line. And it occurred to me, gee, maybe I could write a novel and i had wanted to do this since seventh grade but i had a teacher miss sullivan who knocked that fictional impulse the snot right out of me you know we were going to do uh you know kind of writing with a topic sentence and uh, three paragraph support and that was it and i got very good at that but it's not what i ever wanted to do so finally i got in position and this goes back to Allende's story after just deciding, well, I think I'll write a novel. After 45 years, I thought I'd write it. And it took me 10 years to write this. I went through um, three different drafts of it and shortened it considerably. Lillian Hellman said being a writer means learning to kill your lovelies. These these sentences that you just love, but they're no good. And they have to be put in a drawer. Um, And uh, I got some help. Uh, in the third round uh, from uh, the uh, National Book Award uh, winner, Elizabeth McCracken, who writes these wonderful short stories, and I would commend those to your attention. And she's a really good writer. I'm an okay writer. I'm not Tolstoy, but I'm better than Robert Patterson. So anyway, James Patterson. So this book this book, is a serious book. And I, I wanted to write something serious because I was prompted by this. Like, um, there have been novels about about Jewish life, with Chaim Potok, like *The Chosen*, and um, Howard Jacobson's *The Finkler Question*. Have you ever read *The Finkler Question*? Anybody? Yeah, it won the National Book Award. Or, or sorry, the Man Booker Prize in Britain. And so those books ask who the Jews are, but I wanted to write a book. It asks the question, who the Jew's God is? And so that's why I, uh, in part, start out in this book. So it's, it, it's a serious book. So let me just uh, read you um, uh, the opening of the book. He lifted his hospital sheets and peered down at its stump with disgust. From the time he was eight days old, it had identified him. It had marked his belonging to them. It had signified his belonging to him. Now, its disfigurement served as a repugnant reminder of what he and God each had become, a prick. Not that things had started out that way. Our God and God of our ancestors sustained this child. Let him be known among the Jewish people as Yerachmiel ben Baruch. Zieglitz had no actual memory of the event, nor given his own recent experience, could he conceive of a male of any age wanting to summon up the image of a blade slicing off part of his penis. The first he'd heard of his initial maiming had come from his father eight years later and then only in passing. Look, Ricky, he could still hear daddy saying, I had a bar mitzvah at the shul and so did your grandpa Irv. It's a big step in your life, a sign of your becoming a man. But to get ready for it, you have to go to Hebrew school. It's totally up to you. Do you want to get bar mitzvah or not?" Ricky was felt flabbergasted. Mommy hadn't left brushing his teeth or getting his shots up to him, and she'd given him no say whatsoever in taking the swimming lessons in which she'd enrolled him to, as she put it, get you away from your books for once. Daddy had never given him much leeway either except for where to move next in checkers, something he'd invariably get wrong. Why, then he wondered, had his father given him a say now in something so important? It's like this, Ricky, Daddy began seeing his blank stare. I want you to have more choices about what happens in your life than I've had in mine. If you decide against having a bar mitzvah, I know there'll be people who go along with your mother and accusing me of being cheap, of wanting to dodge the shul's dues and the Hebrew school's tuition. But I don't care what any of them thinks, not even pop. Ricky realized what a big deal it would be for daddy to stand up to his father, Grandpa Irv, who could read Hebrew faster than anybody else at their seders. He never stopped for any English, not for so much as a blessed art thou, O Lord, which the rabbi, Ricky would later become, knew was the Haggadah's rendering of its most recurrent Hebrew phrase, Baruch Atah Adonai. The way Grandpa Irv whizzed through those words, they sounded like broke adenoid. I guess it all boils down to this, pal, Daddy said, placing his hands on Ricky's shoulders. Do you want a bar mitzvah? Are you willing to go to Hebrew school to have one? And for reasons that become apparent later on in the uh, chapter, Ricky didn't need to think twice. Can't wait. All right, then, Daddy replied. You need to know what your Hebrew name is. It's the first thing they'll ask you in class. What do you mean, my Hebrew name? Well, that's the name you got at your bris. What's a bris? Daddy took a deep breath. It wasn't a topic he'd planned on addressing. When you were eight days old, he explained, A rabbi came to the house to perform a ceremony called a bris, what's known in English as a circumcision. It's something we Jews have been doing for thousands of years. It took several minutes before Daddy got around to the part about the knife and Ricky Schmeckel. But why there? Ricky gasped in disbelief. Because that's where God told Abraham to do it, Daddy responded. Daddy had just told Ricky the scariest story he'd ever heard. From the beginning, God, being Jewish and pain, had been inextricably bound up together. So I think you can tell that this book has some fairly serious themes. But I didn't want it to be all serious. I wanted it to have humor in it for a couple reasons. I think that makes it better for the reader. But also, I have a very deep suspicion of religious people who don't have senses of humor. I just want you to think of a Haredi in the West Bank, of a Christian nationalist in this country, and of a mullah in Iran, and see if a smile comes to your face. People who are religious, who don't have a sense of humor, who don't have the ability to stand back, look at themselves and say, you know, I may believe this with all my heart, but I may be wrong sense of humor and being able to laugh at yourself as a sign of that. And so I wanted that in the book. So there's a later part where Ricky, who's now become known as Rod, is applying to rabbinical school. And you need to know something about this scene. So there are two rabbis who are going to be mentioned. One is a Rabbi Mishkin who has urged him to go to rabbinical school and whom he looks up to. And the other, is a rabbi from his hometown of Medina who is his nemesis because Ricky, uh, as a boy, Ricky in his bar mitzvah speech castigated this rabbi. And they've been at odds since then. So he's supposed to go have his rabbinical school interview and um, he's running late and he finally finds the door of the office that he's supposed to go to and he knocks on it and a voice answered, enter and inside he came upon a gray beard with a black rayon yarmulke and an equally elderly woman sitting next to a platter of cookies since you're late most of our interview panel has already left said the old man rod replied i'm sorry but nobody told me the time to be here and then i had trouble finding excuses don't make for a good first impression mr zieglitz i'm rabbi dr kranich the seminary's rector and this is mrs lutz President of the Board of Trustees. Would you like a cookie, Mrs. Lutz asked Rod. Before Rod could answer, Rabbi Dr. Kranach broke in. "While While we await the arrival of another interviewer, a rabbi whom I believe you know, I have some questions for you. Feeling more confident now that Rabbi Mishkin would be there for support, Rod replied, please ask anything you want. Let's start with questions about your observance of Sabbath prohibitions. Do you refrain from driving or riding on Shabbat? No. Do you refrain from spending money? No. Do you refrain from using electricity? No, Rod answered again. Frustrated by Cranick's questions about all the mitzvot he hadn't observed, he tried to change the subject by citing one he thought he'd performed. Look, I led a college, uh, a fundraising campaign for Israel on my college campus, he said. Raising money for the seminary is what matters most to us, Mr. Zieglitz. Isn't that right, Mrs. Lutz? Would you like a cookie, Mrs. Lutz asked Rod. Just then the door opened, and Kranich said, Ah, our guest rabbi has joined us. Rod turned around, expecting Rabbi Mishkin. Instead, he saw the Medina rabbi good to see you again. Rick, isn't it? Stunned, Rod didn't correct him. Taking a seat at the far end of the table, the Medina rabbi went on, I still remember your bar mitzvah speech. You were right about one thing. Your grandfather, Irv, of blessed memory, was a religious learned Jew. Unfortunately, his knowledge seems not to have been passed on as evidenced by how Jewishly ignorant you and your mother both were. So to be fair, I'll ask you a question I generally reserve for Hebrew school children. What's your favorite Bible story? Rod could brush off how he'd been mistreated all morning, but he couldn't disregard the insult to mom. He looked the Medina rabbi in the eye and answered, well, if you really want to know the story I like best in the Bible, I guess it's the one where the guy gets the nails in his hands. I ha- I see you haven't changed a bit, said the Medina rabbi. Neither of you, asshole, said Rod under his breath. You're excused, Mr. Zeiglitz, said Cranach, who sitting closer to Rod had heard him. Would you like a cookie? Mrs. Lutz asked Rod on his way out. So I think you can see the balance that I'm trying to do. And, um, you know, if you have any questions or you want to say anything, I'd love, to, we've got some time, so I'd, I'd love this to be more of a conversation than me reading of, reading to you or lecturing you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We write about serious things and, and use humor. Yeah. Sh- Shalom Auslander. So I went to a, a book event. I go to these things when they're around. And Shalom Auslander, how many of you know of him, know his book? He wrote a book called Foreskin's Lament. Um, and, and, he, and he wrote it, he did something on NPR, uh, which call, and he's written about it, called the bruchabi, when he was a kid in yeshiva, and it's hilarious. It's just laugh out loud. <laughs> so I met him, and um, I told him that we had a lot of in common, because like him, I had had a background, but I wasn't, you know, um, exactly on the straight and narrow of, of belief and so forth. And I asked him to sign a copy of his book for me. And he signed a copy of the book with a little smiley face that said, See you in hell, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) My my kind of guy. So, yeah. Those people have definitely influenced Uh, Sheldon and I once heard Chaim Potok speak uh, to our class in Jerusalem. And uh, somebody asked him, and I guess this is the sign if you're a really good writer, somebody asked him, if your books are so good, how come they haven't been made into movies? Uh, and one of those books was actually, but uh, chosen. chosen. But yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to, to try to hit both those notes. And there are things that struck me as funny, and I circulate them to uh, readers who I trust, and they said, this is not funny. It's just boring. And so, you know, what, what can you do? Do you know the Ricky Gervais story? The, the, so a, a holocaust survivor dies and goes to meet god and god says tell me tell me you know whatever you want and the holocaust survivor tells god a holocaust and god doesn't lie. and the holocaust survivor says well i guess you had to be there yeah. <laughs> that is the most theological joke I know. And that is is told by an atheist. So so, yeah, things, things of of Jewish meaning and and depth can be found in all kinds of places. If you but I I did not want to write a just so story. Uh, And um, when I was a kid in seventh grade before Mrs. Sullivan, I used to write O. Henry stories where, you know, you you have the trick ending and then work backwards. And when I was writing this book, it was important to me that I wrote a book where I didn't know what was going to come next, because that's what makes a story a story. At any point, it makes sense to say, what happens next? With a nonfiction book, I mean, I had these plotted out, and I knew the end and the middle and the beginning, but I didn't know that working on this book. So, you know, it's a process, and that's why it took me so long, I think, in part to write it. Um, Yeah. I think it's my last one too it's it's harder to write fiction than non-fiction it's harder to get dialogue that actually sounds like real people talking that different people are talking that men and women are different and uh and oh somebody lest you do this it, um the books uh, rabbi schatz has some of the books and after mariv i'd be glad to sign them um but some people say and they always want to ask this from authors is this from your real life is this from your own life which is like the most boring question you can ask an author and i would just go to that great sage mort saul who said uh when he was telling stories it's all true but some of it is actual yeah so some of it's actual um and, but, but it's all true. And, God bless the writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Without writer. Yeah. We wouldn't have stories. Yeah. We would have oral storytellers whose work would be lost. So uh, is there anything anybody else would w- wants to say or ask? Well, yes, sir. Ah, so, so for example, the first draft of this was 522 pages. The current draft is 208. <laughs> so it changed a lot. But, I, but there are things like, if you work with a, a professional writer, professional editor, and I, I worked with a woman named uh, Catherine Nichols, who's excellent. Um, she noticed, and it's hard for me to know, she said, you know, we have this kind of little plot device coming up again and again. It's like an authorial tick. You know you set up the same situation, it's different people, different ends, but it's the same thing, and it's repetitive and i I would never have mm-hmm. noticed that you know people who and this is true with my nonfiction people who don't have outside readers read stuff are just self indulgent mm-hmm. I mean you know it's like why do you think that you're Mozart that you can write something right the first time? Nobody does that, so yeah. And so it changed, and there are characters that I had in, and and scenes that are dropped; they're not there anymore. And there are things that are compressed, and um, and things. Even with you know, when you work, this originally had 22 chapters. Now it has 19, like the Rambam, and um, that that's just coincidental. But in in working over a long plot over you know several years to write something, there were plot holes or things that. I put in, it made no sense. And you know, it's, it's like I read this stuff and each chapter I would write myself before sending it out or anything, 20 times. And that, that's the wonder of word processors, but I obsess over it and I still get it wrong. So you need other readers. Because after I wrote my book, Raising Spirits, the book has to get out. So I knew the in fact, the original title would be Prick. And, and and a, a writing instructor, because I thought as oh, a grabber, I even knew what the cover would look like. Um, and a writing professor told me that that smacked of toxic masculinity. Um, and I don't know whether it did or not, but I didn't want to get canceled before I even got the book out. So, and, and this is a better title. And you'll see as you read the book that one thing that that I really want to handle here is what the notion of blessing is, uh, and that's why it's called Ziegler's blessing. And so my my I have a doctorate in philosophy of religion, so that training comes in here to help me explain things like notion of blessing in a sophisticated, so um, and issues of theodicy. Uh, so this you know you know if, help me out here. Told by a series of letters. Well, you've read books like that. So this book, in a way, has little sermons. There's a big point in the book where the guy knows he can't ever give a sermon again. So, um, Rabbi, as I say, that's my time. So (laughs) thank thank you you all. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Betham Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.